of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 475. It is me and Jason, Jason and I, and we're going to take on music again. Look around the world. You know, where, where are we right now? What's going on in this place? What's going on in this place is a bid to remove every shred of freedom of every living man, woman, and child in the world. That's what's going on. If you can't see it, you're delusional. You're living in a dream and you're not carefully examining what's actually going on. Everything is about to change. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to make a prediction that if you see the interest rates on money jump up near 8% this spring, you're seeing the run for digital currency. And while people will scream how great crypto is, what's actually going on is we're headed for a time when everybody is socially rated if they get their way. And digital money will drive that bus. And by the way, um, on top of it, they're already implementing cities all over the world with 15-minute drive zones. They're openly doing it in a couple places in England. Uh, they're secretly doing it in a number of other cities. How did we get to this state? Well, unfortunately, and people don't want to hear it, part of how we got here was through the programming. And a big part of the programming of my generation, where it really came and started, was music. And if you want to consider things like the Beatles and the Stones, which we may touch on here and there as we get into this, the Beatles were the good boys. And everyone said, oh, it's a, it's a marketing tool. And the Stones were the bad boys. You know, they got an album called uh, Sympathy or a song called Sympathy for the Devil and Goat's Head Soup with a picture of a goat's head and some soup in the middle of the album. They're the Satan boys, but it's all branding, right? Well, no, it wasn't. It was programming. And while the good boys, the Beatles, got some portion of a decade to walk the face and put their programming music into our world, the strolling bones are still at it. What's Mick Jagger? Is he pushing 80 yet? I don't know. But people might pick bones with this, but there were others who saw what I can see now a long time ago. Don, Don McLean is one. He wrote the song Bye Bye Miss American Pie. The hell do you think that song is about? He says flat out. This is the rise of Satanism, Luciferianism, these ideas. This was embodied at the Altamont concert that the Rolling Stones used when they put the biker gang, the Hells Angels, in charge of their security. Supposedly someone gets killed. But he says very succinctly in that song, the sacrificial light and the sacrificial right. He sees Satan laughing with the light. And every time they ask that man what the song's about, he won't say because the undercurrent that he wanted to talk about, he had to encode in a song. And I'm putting all this on the table because yeah, we all love the music, but are we grown up enough to look at what's been done to us through the music? Because if we're not, we may have a very rocky road ahead. Anyhow, there's my big lament, Jason. Well, good morning. And uh, we're going to focus more on the American side of things this time. And uh, we might as well just uh, say that a huge shout to the late David McGowan for his incredible work on the Laurel Canyon area. And his book, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, is the one to go to if you want details upon details upon details. And he's another man who got cancer all of a sudden, and it killed him quicker than you can blink your eye. Just put the point on the table. Who knows what's what for sure in this world. 
but it's not hard to see when someone's trying to aim at the things that he aimed at. And, and it's, it's problematic. Everybody loves the music. It is so well thought out to put the programming of a world into the media that we all love. So well, so cleverly thought out. But let's get into this, Jason. We're going to be discussing the nearly miraculous set of events that kicked off what most associate as the 1960s counterculture movement, as well as what is considered the anti-war movement that most think came from the Haight-Ashbury area of San Francisco. The reality, however, is that the anti-war movement had already started before the hippies and flower power children were on the scene, as well as the whole of the counterculture movement kicking off in a small section of the greater Los Angeles area in what is called Laurel Canyon. Laurel Canyon is a woodsy, mountainous area in Los Angeles that connects the San Fernando Valley on one side of the hill to the Sunset Strip on the other. And the Sunset Strip was where numerous rock and roll clubs would spring up, seemingly out of nowhere and for no reason, for the plethora of new music acts that would suddenly manifest into existence without any sort of evidence that any of these events would be occurring in such a short period of time. Let's call a spade a spade, Jason. It was all pre-thought out, right? And in the same way the adults in the world, the supposed adults, were doing Vietnam and other world-ruining things, um, they needed to, to do something about all the kids, the baby boomers. There were so many young people, and they were going to come at it with a two-pronged fork. And actually, it's probably more like a 10-pronged fork, but the basic two things that we're going to address here is they drugged the living lights out of them, and that goes on to our generation. Um, it's just that the pusher now is a pharmaceutical company and not some guy with long hair, and they took over their music to control the thinking to create steam releases where people would have protest songs and think something had actually been accomplished. Uh, what we're going to try to show you here is that it's quite far from that. But the truth, Jason, is the real musical centers, if I'm not mistaken, are basically New York and um, Nashville and Detroit were back in the day. Oh, yeah. Detroit, too. Don't forget Detroit. You're right. But there is no music center. And it sure as hell isn't in the Hollywood Hills or in the you know, the, the Laurel Canyon. No, it was not. And that's the whole point when you start looking at all of this that you come up with. You're like, so it was literally manufactured to exist. It's not that the scene was going on in Los Angeles, so that's where the musicians were going to. It's the other way around. It's, it is a hundred, it is 360 around the circle in the opposite direction. What's basically going to happen is a bunch of young people that are about to be very famous musicians are all going to move into a neighborhood in walking distance of each other. And by the way, within that little area is going to be a military industrial complex place, which I think is currently owned by Jared Leto, if you want to mention something about that. Yeah, there's a whole lot of weirdness that goes on in this one little place. But to get into the timeline here... In the first week of August of 1964, U.S. warships under the command of U.S. Navy Admiral George Stephen Morrison have allegedly come under attack while patrolling Vietnam's Tonkin Gulf. This event, which will be called the Tonkin Gulf Incident, will result in the near-immediate passing by the U.S. Congress of the obviously pre-drafted Tonkin Gulf Resolution, a sequence of events that has quite the similarity with the Patriot Act. 
The Tonkin Gulf resolution quickly leads America into deep immersion in the bloody Vietnam conflict, often mislabeled as a war. Over 50,000 American troops, along with millions of Southeast Asians, will end up losing their lives in this drawn-out event. Let's lay it down in black and white. There was a false flag that was done, and it kicked off the excuse for the Vietnam War. Is that basically a fair way to state it, Jason? It really wasn't even a false flag event. It was literally manufactured. Nothing actually happened, so they just said it did. So this is the thing. I was alive back then, and everybody was bellied up to the news. All the young people were bellied up to the rock and roll music. We're a little early. It's 64. Hasn't quite, the rock and roll thing hasn't quite gone into full mainstream, but everybody knew that those bastards on that side of the world had done something terrible and we needed to go romp them. And look at what we can see in the world now. As a matter of fact, I'll say a thing. I'm not going to say much of a thing, but did you know that Russia has no central bank and its money is backed by gold. Is there anything really more we need to know? But let's keep pushing on what we're doing here, Jason. Moving into 1965, a new scene or movement is starting to take shape in Los Angeles in an area known as Laurel Canyon. This is a heavily wooded, rustic, serene, yet vaguely ominous section of Los Angeles that cuts through the hills that separate the Los Angeles Basin from the San Fernando Valley. There, musicians, singers, and songwriters suddenly begin to gather as though they are summoned there by some sort of unseen force. Within a few months, the hippie flower child movement will spring into being there, as opposed to San Francisco as most think. Along with this movement, new styles of music will emerge that will provide the soundtrack for the chaotic second half of the decade of the 60s, as well as the early 70s. The first of the new styles will be folk rock, an electrified version of the acoustic folk music that was quite popular that had come out of the beatnik movement of the previous decade. I guess we could reference back to uh, Don McLean's American Pie again. The jester in that song is partially one of the entendres is Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan was big in folk music. Folk music was big in this country. As a matter of fact, my parents were big into folk music. People like Pete Seeger. Joan Baez, she's a little later down the line from the timeline we're on now, but folk was huge. So what they did is they got Bob Dylan to electrify. Do you want to cover the account? I mean, there you can, I don't know if it was filmed. Maybe you can find it on YouTube. The audio exists. You can hear where people are yelling at him and he's like, play it loud. Yep. And he's all, you turncoat, Bob Dylan. We, we had a good thing going here and you electrified your music. Um, they're going to be saying the same thing about cars here pretty quick because they're electrifying the cars in the same way they electrified the guitars. This era in front of us, if they get their way, is electricity and control. <laughs> that's that's what this is about. But Dylan, who is, in fact, one of the main points in the Dom McLean song, and there are triple entendres in that song, unless I'm mistaken, he electrifies his guitar and, it, you know, everybody's, has anyone not seen, was it 60 minutes, Jason, where, where uh, it's like Ed Bradley or someone, I forget who says, oh, Dylan, why, 
why don't you go buy an island in the Bahamas and retire? And he basically says, because I sold my soul to Satan and, um, you know. <laughs> got to keep my word to the chief. Yep, the, the top guy. I made my promise. I got to hold my end up. In other words, my poor bones are tired, but I got to keep going till the end of time or I'll end up like Prince or something like that. I don't know. And that was, oh, I don't know. That, that interview was probably like 10, 20 years ago by now. I, I would guess it was Ed Bradley, uh, early 90s, maybe. I don't know. I'm guessing, but I think you can still look that up. And so people overlook what we're talking about because it's easy to say, oh, there's no pitchfork holding the horn devil. That's really not the point. The point is, is that there's a dark side of things going on here. And in the world we live in now, I think a lot more people are ready to take a careful look about the dark heart of control. A ridiculous number of rock music superstars will emerge from the Laurel Canyon area beginning in the mid-1960s. This will carry through to the first years of the following decade. The first to professionally release material will be a band called The Birds, whose biggest star will end up being the infamous David Crosby, going on to superstardom after his time as a member of The Birds. There are so many professional acts that will come from this area that it seems way too coincidental to just be a matter of chance. Isn't it interesting that we're getting this big first bloom of band called the, the Birds, and I'm assuming you're going to talk a little bit about Crosby later, his family tree. Um, but in, on the other side of the pond, the Yardbirds are a big deal, which will bloom Jeff Beck. Uh, I think Clapton's associated with that, isn't it? But Jimmy Page, of course, and Led Zeppelin. But what's interesting to me about it is, if I'm not mistaken, like back in the 70s, the slang for women when the times allowed people to be objectified was a chick. But I believe in England, they referred to a chick as a bird. Yes. So even the name of the band is starting to undermine the 50s kind of clean, squeaky family value. And that's really quite a side note, but, and am I, am I right? Clapton comes out of the original birds or is adjacent? Is that right? The Yardbirds? Clapton, Beck and Paige all played in the Yardbirds. Yep. And if you haven't heard, uh, Jeff Beck left us at an, uh, this park blew me away. I think he was 79. I didn't realize he was that old, but let's keep pushing. Unless you, do you want to say something about Crosby? The other thing about all these people is they all have something in common, don't they, Jason? But I'm sure we'll get to that. Yeah. We will be getting to that and into the backgrounds of a lot of these people, which <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty laughable it's when you look at it. Well, it, what's even more laughable is why wouldn't anyone take what McGowan laid down, what we're elaborating on here, and examine what's going on in the world now? You know, you're going to find the same thing going on. Well, the one person who has done that since Dave McGowan's passing is our friend Mark Devlin, and uh, hats off to him for writing three books, Musical Truth 1, 2, and 3, where he, he did indeed take the McGowan information and then brought it forward through the decades. Good on Devlin, and I'll hand him some props here. He's such a good researcher that things that I know he loved, he's reframed his mind around them, and I know that for a fact firsthand. And that proves that someone is interested in trying to get down to the rocky core of things. After several attempts at being a professional act, the band that would become The Birds signed a recording contract with Columbia Records on November 10th, 1964, while still barely even being a band. The drummer was a conga player who had never picked up a set of drumsticks before, but was said to have been signed due to his good looks and the resemblance to Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. 
The bass player was a steady mandolin player, but had never played the bass before. But that did not matter. The Birds' debut effort is a single called Mr. Tambourine Man, released on the summer solstice, June 21st, 1965. The song is an electrified version of a Bob Dylan song, and it is openly admitted that session musicians played the music on the track, with the exception of the 12-string guitar work of Jim, who later changed his name to Roger McGuinn. The voices of the three singers of the band will be overdubbed over the excellently recorded instrumental music. <laughs> In other words, absolute provable construct. But I've got to ask here, is this McGowan pointing out the summer solstice or is that Mr. Lindgren pointing out the summer solstice? That was from McGowan, actually. Wow. I didn't know that. A little more respect for McGowan there. But who, who did they sign with, Jason? There she is, Columbia. <laughs> Absolutely. With Columbia. And, and where's the connection with Brian Jones of the now strolling bones? It never ends. With the near-immediate success of the Birds, folk rock became all the rage. After the Birds, quick releases from other new artists who were quickly signed and rushed into recording studios included the John Phillips-led Mamas and the Papas with their album If You Can Believe Your Eyes and Ears from January of 66, Love with Arthur Lee with the album Love from May of 66, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, Freak Out, June 66, Buffalo Springfield, which featured Stephen Stills and Neil Young with their album Buffalo Springfield, October 66, and one of the most successful acts of the era, The Doors, with their first album, The Doors, in January 1967. This is the end. To make a pun, but there's a lot going on here. And as you will find out, Frank Zappa is the king. And the same, you know what? Here, here's one for you. In the same way Zappa was king of Laurel Canyon, uh, the the director or the CEO, maybe, who, who would you give that title in rock and roll to today? Oh, that would be Mr. Dave Grohl. There it is. I knew you were going to say it. The director of uh, Circumstance. But of this coming bands like Buffalo Springfield, You've got to realize back then the radio was the music. If you were at home, you had an album or a radio player. If you were not at home, the way you got your music primarily was through the radio. Now, eight track tapes and things are going to come along. But even then, primarily, it is the car or the transistor radio that you carry with you. And the airplay alone, what, what was it that we just covered where, they, where the statement of proof was, oh, it was for the Beatles. That the people, they played it so much in media and, and radio that all the young people truly believed that their favorite band was the Beatles. But Tavistock and places like that knew that they could achieve that end just by the airplay. But what I was going to point out, um, this is starting to change a little bit. In Buffalo Springfield, Stephen Stills is actually a talented musician compared to most of these folks out of the gate. Numerous new clubs like the Whiskey A Go-Go, the Roxy. The Rainbow, Pandora's Box, The Trip, and other nearby hotspots like the Troubadour and Beto Litos were all venues that these unknown bands aspired to play in, and play they did. Adding to the new and unusual energy of these clubs was another new group of artists and dancers who were known as Los Angeles's Freaks. They were led by an odd choice, a man named Vito Palikas, an artist who was 52 in 1965, and another unusual character known as Wild Man Carl Franzoni, who was his sidekick. Along with them came a group of about 30 to 35 followers, 
many of whom were rather attractive women. The freaks are credited by many as being at the forefront of the hippie counterculture. An appearance by the freaks at any of these new clubs would guarantee a huge crowd since gawkers would come to watch the half-naked wild dancers performing what many would describe as bizarre dance moves. Conveniently, any band that the freaks came out to see would wind up with their own huge following of fans. The Birds were one of the first of the new bands to profit from this situation, almost like it was all set up from the get-go. Because it was set up from the get-go, and sex always sells, and you will you know, you can rip apart some of the names, Pandora's Box, and, and some other things, but let's make the obvious connection here. In past musical episodes, we've done things like pointed out that the seminal punk rock album by the Sex Pistols is basically the same name as the later new punk rock called Grunge, recycled, never mind, being the name of both of the efforts. In other words, punk rock worked so well, they recycled it. Well, this is going on too in a different way because as the hippie movement is completely pre-worked out, how they will look, how their hair will be, what their clothes will be, what what they're called, because people were in fact called freaks. Um, All of it is being worked out in advance of the movement here, but where it's done, that's going to happen again in the 1980s for what people like to call the hair bands. The same little method of making stars is going to happen on the Sunset Strip again in the 80s. And everybody knows, probably is aware of 80s music that's listening, even if you're a bit younger, um, the reach of 80s rock and roll, which some might say was the death knell of rock and roll. But I mean, what would you add there, Jason? It's just a recycling in the exact same place, achieving the same end, making famous people. And this hippie look was seemingly created by this guy, Vito's much younger wife, Sue, uh, by selling the clothes in her little shop in Laurel Canyon. So let's get this straight. Before there were hippies, someone created a here's how hippie look shop and started selling the clothes right on the club where all the music was the epicenter or the seed that had been planted for this movement that's about to go worldwide. And then these freaks all took on that look, that dress, and it spread from there. So when you look at this, it just literally looks manufactured, but most people don't want to hear it. They, you know, this is the thing when you're in the middle, it's like, that's why I'm mentioning back in the day, people were convinced that these idiots in this part of the world had done some unpardonable thing. So clearly military force, it's nonsense. It's always nonsense. You know, when I went through the Marine Corps, one of the heroes that you're taught about in boot camp, a guy named Smedley Butler, he was later quoted as saying, I love my country. I take my job seriously. The only problem is every time I went out to war, I found myself working for one corporation or another. That's a very famous man. And you can look up the quote, these things that go on. And right now what's going on, where are the big wars? That's why I mentioned there's no central bank in Russia. That's all I'm going to say about it. But you ought to think about what was just said. What we're covering here kind of shows how easily having that much control over media and enough money to fund what you want can literally change the culture of the world. Interesting that you brought up Smedley Butler. There's still video you could find on YouTube, I believe, where he was approached during World War II about a socialist fascist takeover of America. And he went along with it and exposed the plot. And you don't hear too many people mentioning about that, but he went before Congress and uh, 
yeah, he exposed it. And obviously that did not happen at the time. You've got to wonder, you know, I've got to wonder, you know, because they made a movie about that, or at least there's a movie that reflects that very idea. I forget who the stars are. They were big A stars in the day where one of the big generals wants to do a similar thing. And Kirk Douglas stands up against him. I assume they're referencing off that, but you've got to wonder, this man's a general, right? He's inside. Does he have the latitude to do such things or was that directed? I don't know, but you see... Some might accuse you of having a suspicious mind, but look around in the world right now. Are you ready to trust the powers that be and authority? Without that suspicious mind, you're going to be taken. And the whole the whole thrust of what we're doing here is showing that a group of people somewhere, Tavistock and others, had a plan and they implemented it and for my money, Jason, the music industry that starts in the 60s changed the world in ways that could never be completely described or measured. And it was more successful than any spy versus spy thing that has ever been come up with in the world. Not worded very well, but I think you know what I mean. Well, if one doesn't have a suspicious mind, you get what's happened the last few years and needles go in arms that should not have been. And now those consequences are already starting to come home. We can go back and listen to the king and learn about the suspicious mind, right? Oh, wait a minute. The jester stole his thorny crown. If you guys are following what I'm laying down. All right, let's go. One incredibly important detail that we haven't mentioned yet is that all, or perhaps it is safer to say nearly all, in case there may be the odd one or two who don't fall into this description, of these new rock stars come from families that are attached to the military intelligence complex. Many of their immediate family members were either in a branch of the armed forces, and not just a member of the rank and file, but much higher up, part of one of the intelligence communities, or often both. This is true of all of the main players that might come up, with no exceptions that immediately come to mind. Now, now this one thing alone is what blows my mind. This has been outed. People have even taken it further. As a matter of fact, I've seen Jason and myself took a little bit further when we first were, I think it was first a PDF from McGowan. I saw, I don't even remember. It's long time ago. I was handed a PDF of McGowan and I started to look into this, but this is beyond statistical probability. So even if you want to be Mr. You know, logical clinical guy, this is be, I mean, it's, I mean, with, would you say it's hundred percent? I mean, it's almost close enough to hundred percent that we can probably do what a scientist would do and say 99.999 or something. That's, that's how overwhelming this statement is across all these, these people about to be famous. Stepping back a moment. One of the earliest on the Laurel Canyon sunset strip scene is Jim Morrison, who is about to become the charismatic, but volatile lead singer of the Doors a band which was founded in 1965. Jim Morrison will quickly become one of the most iconic, controversial, critically acclaimed, and incredibly influential figures to ever take up residence in Laurel Canyon. The self-proclaimed Lizard King, however, has another claim to fame, although it was one that he went out of his way to never mention during his time in the spotlight. That claim is that Jim Morrison is the son of the aforementioned Admiral George Stephen Morrison. Who lied us into the Vietnam War. So the father was programming the world and lying, and then they got the son to do a similar thing in a different way. But it's worse than that. 
I remember, and I don't know if you can still find accounts of Jim Morrison lying in an interview, lying about who his family actually was. But let me just tie another connection here. Wasn't Jim Morrison in film school? Do you know? Yes, he was. And so was Ray Manzarek, the keyboardist for The Doors. Boy, there is just no separating entertainment and media, is there? And by the way, Jim Morrison often told interviewers that his parents were dead. There it is. I've seen that lie, and I've seen other ones that I'm not sure you can find anymore that were just outright outright lies because he was counterculture, hippies were loving him, and how could he admit that his dad was top of the war machine, right? Although he, he alludes to it in some of his songs. And by the way, since we're going to be on, on our side of the Atlantic for most of this, I would mention, look at how many of the big British rock stars all went to art college as a primer. Just saying. On December 22nd, 1965, the Birds recorded a new self-penned composition titled Eight Miles High at RCA Studios in Hollywood. This was in contrast to much of their previously recorded material, which were cover songs. However, Columbia Records refused to release this version because it had been recorded at another record company's facility. One must wonder if it might have something to do with the quality of the musicianship, but of course, that's just speculation. Regardless, the band was forced to re-record the song at Columbia Studios in Los Angeles on January 24th and 25th, 1966, and it was this re-recorded version that would be released as a single and then be included on the group's third album. The song is called A Creative Leap Forward for the band and is often considered the first full-blown psychedelic rock recording, although there are other contemporaneous acts, such as Donovan and the Yardbirds, who are also exploring similar musical territory at the time. The important point to note here is that this song was pivotal in transmuting folk rock into the new musical forms of psychedelia and raga rock, which was inspired by Indian music. Psychedelia, of course, is directly connected to the taking of hallucinogenic drugs. All right, first big band, The Birds, and their first big hit that they supposedly wrote, 1965. We are one day off, and this actually might be the low point of the sun, December 22. Uh, let's call a spade a spade. Who are they doing it for? Columbia. That's who they're doing it for. Why were they forced to re-record? Well, my suspicious mind says, what are they doing with this music? They're launching a whole new counterculture programming method. One of the main things is they're going to drug people out. And this is listed as one of the first psychedelic rock songs. By the way, they had to get the word high into the title. If you're following my logic, you're not high. You're eight miles high. Regardless of what I think or anyone else, history looks back and says this was probably one of the first psychedelics, but why did they have to re-record? My suspicious mind suspects that they were musicians who were actually into what they were doing, and it's so early in what's about to happen that they're not realizing the control that's going to be exerted on the product they're putting out. And Columbia said, you come home to Miss Columbia's house so we can get all our backtracking or whatever they may have done with that music. And I will not set aside the idea that masters might be set aside with demons attached to them. And that may seem a bridge too far to you, but let me tell you something. Over all the decades I've lived, I've bumped into things that are beyond logical explanation. Like for most of my life, why did I wake up with music playing in my head that I couldn't turn off? 
Why was that music something I thought at the time? I haven't heard that for a year. Why am I thinking about this now? And then I learned I can turn off the music. And what that was about was control of my own mind. But what is it that overrides my control in the first place? I'm suspicious. So when I see that they force them to come back to the Columbia Studios, that minimally what's going on is they're going to get some programming in there because even the keywords matter, as we've shown in our Tavistock episodes. A simple trigger word is enough to do some damage, by the way. I also strongly suspect the musicianship wasn't up to par because most of these guys in The Birds weren't that good. And it is completely admitted that on their first single, Mr. Tambourine Man, the majority of the music was recorded by a group of studio musicians known as the Wrecking Crew. It's not admitted that the Wrecking Crew played on their first album, but if you listen to it, it's a little too good for people who just started. But at least we have them admitting that the first single was recorded by the Wrecking Crew. Well, this seems to be ubiquitous in famous recording studios, at least some of them. Uh, Muscle Shoals, which produced Lord knows how many worldwide hits uh, during the rock genre, is written into the song that everyone turns off now because they've heard it too much, Sweet Home Alabama. In Muscle Shoals reside the Swampers, or the Swampers, I think it's the Swampers, and they've been known to do a song or two. These are studio, quality studio musicians. So it goes to show you. But, I mean, it's not surprising. Everyone's been to a live concert. I was a roadie for years. How often do you hear the band of that song that you love do it live, anything close to the version you're used to? Well, when you do things in a studio, there's a lot more things you can do. You become much more capable. And by the way, there's probably some extra musicians laying around if you need to fill some tracks. Well, live, people aren't going to notice slight fluctuations in timing and things like that. And people, when they jam together, will sometimes go up and down in the tempo just based off of the emotions going on. But in the studio, you can't be doing stuff like that. It's got to be exact or close enough. Look at the Beatles example. So the Beatles tell us, well, we can't go out because people are screaming so loud we can't hear ourselves. So we're just not going to tour anymore. We're just going to make all these world-shattering albums in a studio. Well, they couldn't play them live because they put so many tracks and so much sound effects and Lord knows all the things in the Beatles music. But how do they go out? What is the last time you ever see the Beatles perform? What they do is they bring in a prodigy. I mean, almost no one better on the keyboards. And then they go up and they play some of the simpler songs to dispel the idea that people might have got that the Beatles couldn't play their own music. What do you think that was all about going up to the rooftop there the last time anyone's ever going to see them together? And why was the new guy there? You know, the uh, keyboard prodigy? Billy Preston. You see, yeah, Billy Preston. You see how this works. What would those sessions have been without Billy Preston is what I ask myself. Laurel Canyon's father figure for most of the 1960s is the rather eccentric figure Frank Zappa though he and his various Mothers of Invention lineups will never attain the outward commercial success of other Laurel Canyon bands, Frank will be a hugely influential figure among nearly all of the other suspiciously present musicians and actors who just all happened to live in this one particular place. Frank Zappa lived in a large house that was dubbed The Log Cabin, which sat right in the heart of Laurel Canyon at the crossroads of Laurel Canyon Boulevard and Lookout Mountain Avenue. 
It is no longer there, as it burned to the ground in 1970. Before that, however, Zappa will play host to virtually every musician who passes through the canyon in the mid to late 1960s. Zappa will also discover and then sign multiple new acts to his various Laurel Canyon-based record labels. Among them would be Alice Cooper, Captain Beefheart, and Larry Wildman Fisher. So of those last bands mentioned, I think few people realized how big Alice Cooper was at one point. Massive. There's a money machine. And by the way, if you look at Alice Cooper, you know, look at his real name, look at his family. But I mean, how would you, if I was going to describe Frank Zappa and what we know about him, I'd call him a controller. What would you call him? An authoritarian. From my point of view, I suspect he was probably a genius or at least incredibly intelligent, which he comes off. You can see him doing, he's just always doing weird things. So it throws people off the track. But it's almost like nothing happened without Frank's nod. And, you know, think about what I just said. He gave the nod to Alice Cooper and signed him. And Alice Cooper becomes a massive band for a period of time. I'm just saying, he seems like the, uh, he seems like the adult that was put in the room to watch the drugged out children. That's kind of true. And by the way, he is the one who was instrumental in uh, getting Alice Cooper into being the shock rock kind of thing that he absolutely mastered over the next few years from this point. Wouldn't surprise me. There are accounts of Alice Cooper being booed off stage early on. As a matter of fact, I think you can still find he's in a pink tutu or something being booed off stage or they're trying to boo him off stage. But, you know, a normal in a normal world, that would only go on so long before you hung up your guitar on the wall. And what actually happens is if you go to Alice Cooper's albums, the later ones, Billion Dollar Babies, Welcome to My Nightmare, listen to the quality of the studio work. When I was a roadie, there would be certain bands when they were doing the sound check on these massive walls uh, for a stadium when they're putting in the sound. And quite often it would be Steely Dan, occasionally Pink Floyd. But some people would give a nod to Alice Cooper and another one, people won't believe it, is the Bee Gees. The reason is, is because the studio quality on these recordings is so high. As a matter of fact, there is an interview where Alice Cooper admits to hearing, I think it's the Bee Gees doing disco, and he pulls his car over saying, how can I get that kind of fidelity? Um, But he couldn't admit it in public, of course. Frank Zappa, along with numerous other individuals who are part of his entourage, will be instrumental in introducing the look and attitude that will define the hippie counterculture. Interestingly, Frank Zappa, who was born on the winter solstice of 1940, never made a secret of the fact that he had nothing but contempt for the hippie culture that he helped create and that he was almost always surrounded with. Frank Zappa was said to be a rigidly authoritarian control freak who supported the United States in its involvement in the military actions occurring in Southeast Asia at the time. And by the way, Frank Zappa was the son of a chemical warfare specialist. Frank spent the first seven years of his life on the grounds of the Edgewood Arsenal, which was the longtime home of the United States chemical warfare programs. Someone with a clear mind and a pinpoint vision would probably deliver a very interesting account by simply zeroing in on Frank Zappa. I was unaware, Jason, that he was born on the winter solstice. These are the kinds of things that interest me because clearly there was something special about Frank. Clearly he was 
intelligent, far beyond the people that surrounded him. Clearly, someone had placed him in a control like the dad of Laurel Canyon or the CEO, however you want to phrase it, the controller. But why is that? And I think you start to uncover it right here. While the whole movement that he's going to craft here from the beginning to include how hippies look back and what they do, what drugs they take, all these types of things, he is backing the war idea. Do you suppose Frank ever was able in an environment where all the hippies he was helping to create were around him, he could have said he supported the war because all the music, and this is a huge tell, all of the music or a lot of it is an actual supposed protest against the war. So what's going on here? I think Frank is delivering a double reverse at a level that probably even the people he was controlling would be surprised to learn. From 1948 to 1975, the U.S. Army Chemical Corps conducted classified human subject research at the Edgewood Arsenal facility located in Maryland. The purpose was said to evaluate the impact of low-dose chemical warfare agents on military personnel and to test protective clothing, pharmaceuticals, and vaccines. A small portion of these studies were directed at what was called psychochemical warfare and grouped under the prosaic title of the Medical Research Volunteer Program from 1956 to 1975. The MRVP was also driven by intelligence requirements and the need for new and more effective interrogation techniques. The experiments were abruptly terminated by the Army in late 1975 amidst an atmosphere of scandal and recrimination as lawmakers accused researchers of questionable ethics. Many official government reports and civilian lawsuits followed in the wake of the controversy. So this is the kind of place that Frank Zappa was brought up in. Well, you mean there were still some actual almost human beings in places of power that said that's a bridge too far? Well, we don't have that anymore, but let me get this straight. So they're testing psychoactive chemicals, pharmaceuticals, and vaccines? Wow, astonishing. In the Marine Corps, I received somewhere between 15 and 20 inoculations. This is still going on. Maybe not the LSD, at least not in the open, but the vaccine portion of this, if you have a young person that's going into certain branches of the military, they are going to receive one hell of a lot of shots. And believe me, I've had to deal with some of the gifts I was given from my time in the Marine Corps. And I'm sure that number has increased radically over the years, too. I don't know. There's times when uh, you were lined up and you pulled down your pants. So both butt cheeks were out and you took off your thing and rolled up both sleeves and nurses with guns, vials with guns in them would shoot a conveyor line in each arm and each upper butt cheek. I'm just saying I had, you know, I've told the story. When I was getting out, they wanted to give another series of three that they admitted was not tested or approved by the FDA or whatever nonsense. It was for something like swine meningitis, and I'd had enough, and I was starting to come around and realize, you know, why, why are they shooting us up all the time? And I turned it down, and the actual commander of headquarters battalion in Okinawa pulled me aside with five others, threatened to court-martial us. And at that point, I'd had enough. I said, court martial away. I'm supposed to be getting out of here before long. And nothing was done to us. And that's when it all hit home for me. What's going on? Because truly, 
when you get into these situations, uh, you have signed yourself, you're basically military property, or at least that's basically what you have agreed to. And yet when I stood my ground, nothing was done to me. And I began to realize, but the point is, is here's one of the ground zeros for that kind of stuff. Uh, when it's starting, like, I wonder when a Vietnam vet in this period of time went over, how many shots did they give those people back then? I wonder there may be some people listening who know the answer to that. Frank Zappa's manager was a man named Herb Cohen. He had moved out to the Los Angeles area from the Bronx with his brother Mutt shortly before any of the new scene began. Herb Cohen was a former U.S. Marine who had spent several years traveling the world before he arrived on the Laurel Canyon scene. One of his adventures had taken him to the Congo in 1961, At the time, the Prime Minister, Patrice Lumumba, who was the head of the Congolese National Movement, was being tortured and killed, supposedly by influences from the CIA. Herb Cohen was said to be there to supply arms to Lumumba in defiance of the CIA, a notion that really doesn't make much sense. All I know is, wait a minute, you're telling me there's a dude who's wrapped up and going to the heads of other countries and there's weapons involved, but now he's doing music? Does anyone find the connection there to be a bridge too far? And for the last point for hour one, before we move on from the Frank Zappa camp, we must make mention of Frank's wife, Gail, formerly known as Adelaide Slotman. Gail comes from a family with numerous career naval officers. This included her father, who spent his life working on classified nuclear weapons research for the U.S. Navy. Gail had once worked as a secretary for the Office of Naval Research and Development. Interestingly, she once told an interviewer that she had heard voices all her life. Before their nearly simultaneous arrival in Laurel Canyon, Gail had attended a naval kindergarten with the Admiral's son, Jim Morrison. Astonishing. Astonishing. In another odd coincidence, Jim Morrison would later attend the same Alexandria, Virginia high school as two other future Laurel Canyon residents, John Phillips and Mama Cass Elliott. John Phillips, uh, there's, there's an ugly tale. It's quite a thing. And I don't know if we'll get into everything there, but I mean, is it hard to imagine looking at the world now what we're talking about? It's like the whole a portion of the war machine that keeps war continuous at some point or place in this world all the time, basically in my lifetime, has a little side project here. Uh, For my money, Jason, it's one of the most successful social programming endeavors that I'm aware of that was ever achieved. And the real downside of this is, is we love it. We love that music. We love the nostalgia. We, I mean, you what would you say? I mean, is this the most clever inserting of cultural programming that has ever been devised, where the very people being programmed would pay their last penny to have access to what's programming them? Well, as I tell people all the time, enjoy the music, but know the facts. The music is good, or else it wouldn't have really been able to be pushed to be what it became, or else people wouldn't have enjoyed it. So yeah, the music had to be good, but just know what it is that you're listening to. And if you are capable, like I am, to separate the emotional side of it from the factual side of it, by all means, listen to it and enjoy it, but just know where it came from. You know, I I agree with that. 
you've got to be aware, but part of the problem with music, it's not a problem with music, but part of the problem of what we're talking about is emotion. This music can make you emotional and black magic and casting nasty spells requires what? Heightened energy, emotion quite often is how those seeds are planted. And we've done enough work on the social programmers to know how insidious single trigger words or certain frequencies or beats or any number of things that has been put into this music can be. And that is the problem. And for my part, uh, I'm with you. Being aware is a step in the right direction. But where I'm not so sure, Jason, is while I consider myself aware, am I immune? And I suspect that I'm not. And while my problem is, is all that music that I grew up with, and because for if no other reason than nostalgia of that time of my life, I have a tight-knit relationship with certain music, it's a love-hate relationship now. And so at first, I had to go through a period where I, I, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with myself. Music had been such a huge part of my life. I literally had about a year of, my God. And then you start to come around and then you start to replace it. And then you do other things. And then you realize I live in this world and I can't escape from this world. So you have to come down to earth again. And I can hear the music, but I know what it did. And so what I have learned to do is not be so invested in it. I recognize that when I was young, Jimmy Page was a God in my mind. There's no reason for me to have ever felt that way about this person. And by the way, I can go on YouTube today and find a hundred guitarists in five minutes that would blow the strings off his guitar. And a lot of them are female these days. Some of the best guitar players you've ever seen in your life. So my point is, is I think it helps to be aware. And I think it helps to have that guard up where my mind is my own and I don't want to give up control of it. A lot of people listening to this might think, what the hell are you guys talking about? I mean, what do you think? So the musicianship and the capability definitely increased as the years went by. The one thing I always stand fast with is I don't care how fast you can play or how many notes you can play. What songs can you write? And that's where a lot of these people, even throughout all of the decades, really, that's where certain individuals shined that was their unique songwriting capabilities. Good point. Hendrix was a little on the sloppy side. He was a phenomenal blues player, but could he compare to, say, like an Ingve Malmsteen who could play a zillion notes perfectly in a, in a second? No, but it doesn't matter. The songs that he wrote were really cool and still stand up today. So that's the way I've looked at musicianship since I kind of got it out of my head about, oh, this guy or this gal can play this, this, and this. I mean, it doesn't matter. How good of a song can you write? You know, it's a good point, Jason. A lot of the really good guitarists you see on YouTube are doing exactly that. How fast can you play an arpeggio all the way up the neck? Um, how speedy, how hard, technically hard can I do a thing? But you're pointing out the underlying truth. Without the song, without the hit, none of this works, right? You know, take a, a song like Purple Haze. What is that? Four or five notes. Smoke on the Water, sometimes voted the greatest guitar riff of all time. You're talking about a few notes, a handful of notes. And so what you're saying is absolutely true, but I don't know what it is or when it was that they realized the power of entertainment. And I guess most of me suspects it was always known, 
that if we went back to a time before radio or any other form where the stage and the traveling minstrel, the, the rulers already knew what the people are going to see here has an effect. And when radio first came along, they absolutely knew from my point of view that, wait a minute, this is the stage electrified. We're not one or two in anymore. Now we're mass communicating as brother, oh brother, where art thou points out. And then when TV came along, you don't think they knew? Brothers and sisters, we got radio with images. They knew. In the same way we pointed out what the first drama on television was, they seem to have always known well in advance these powerful mediums. And isn't it a shame that music just can't be beautiful and heartfelt and meaningful? But the truth is, this is what we have to look out for in our world now. And for all the people out there who play music, good for you. Because when you're sitting in your home playing music, that's meaningful. And there's not some dark heart somewhere trying to undermine or put some clever spell or how, whatever the proper way to say it is. That's important. Because as we wrap up hour one, I will point out, there have been some very high spiritual philosophical minds that have pointed things out like you can always tell when someone's living in an unfortunate place and they talk about, well, there's no water or no trees. And these are kind of obvious, but almost universally, you will see that if there is no art in a place that is considered unfortunate. And at the end of the day, what are we talking about? This is art that has been co-opted by big corporations. So You know, this is a a two-headed monster for me to try to cover because I love art. I love people who create art. Uh, The music that we're talking about was the majority of the importance in my early life. And so it's terrible to have to say, by the way, all these things we love got taken over by some nasty beast somewhere. I mean, what would you add before I wrap it up, Jason? Well, I think governments in general knew that entertainment was the way to control the masses all the way back to look at uh, the bread and circuses notion of the Roman empire. So they knew, and maybe they didn't know exactly when these new technologies were coming out, what could be done with them. But I think very quickly they figured it out. And that's exactly what we see over and over and over again, especially throughout the 20th century, new technologies came out. They gravitated towards them, figured out how to use them and weaponize it all. And the social engineering continues in new and more powerful ways. It's crazy to think about. And what hurt me the most is when I had to realize that the music I love was a pale shadow of the higher-minded music that had come before it. And when I forced myself to realize that it was true, then I had to come with grips. Well, you can still like this. You can still appreciate this. But the truth was the truth. And what's going on now is if I go back to the 60s and 70s, the level of musicianship and everything else going on then is has fallen all the more all the way up till now at some point we might consider doing an episode there's there's like a couple guys names that have written like 80% of the modern pop music i forget their names but maybe we should take a run at it but there's our one of episode 475 there is a lot more to get into and from my point of view You can't deny this. I mean, it's beyond statistical probability, some of the things that we're going to lay down. And I think it's important that we be aware in the era we're heading into because God knows the change that is in front of us. 
The first hour is going to be free to everybody at pro777radio.com. That's C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full episode. Members also get the movie Shoot the Moon for free, which is right on the site. With that, I would truly like to wish everybody out there a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.